Okay, we're in 1 Samuel, chapter number 13 tonight. And we started a study two weeks ago um, looking at the looking at some lessons we can learn from the kings uh, of Israel. And one of the reasons why I decided on this is just because I think it's very apl- ap- applicable to us. Um, not because any of us are kings, but as we look at the nation of Israel, they were God's chosen people, and the direction that they went depended on the king and the de- decisions that the king made, whether or not the king was following after God, whether or not the, the king was uh, leading them in the right direction. And the way that relates to us is we all have a choice of who we allow to lead us and kind of in a, a much smaller way than uh, the nation of Israel. But for us as Christians, if we allow God to lead and direct us, if we are following after him, then God can bless us, our lives, our families and things. And if we choose to go the world's way or our own way, then we'll see the negative consequences of that as well. And that's what is highlighted throughout the Kings. Uh, whenever we have a king that is following after God and is serving God, God is able to bless them, prosper them, as well as the whole people of Israel. And as soon as they get a wicked king in, someone who's not following after God, it's not long before the entire nation descends into idolatry and uh, all sorts of wickedness, and it affects several generations, really. And that can be, as I said, it can be compared to our lives. And so the decisions we make, whether we follow God or whether we do things our own way, are going to have a huge impact on our lives and on the lives of those who are around us. And so as we study the way that God worked through these kings and the decisions that they made, it is really a, it can be a warning and an encouragement both to us uh, as we're making decisions and as we're uh, living this life because many of these kings end up uh, falling into the very same ruts that we do from time to time. And so we're going to be seeing that. But two weeks ago, we were looking at Israel's demand for a king. Uh, They had uh, the time of the judges where often every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And then it came to Samuel being the last judge. And they said, well, our prospects aren't looking good. Your sons are horrible. And we are somewhat scattered. And so we want a king so it can unite us as a kingdom. We want someone who we can see visibly before us rather than having to follow God by faith. We'd rather walk by sight rather than by faith, right? And we want to be like all of the nations around us. Uh, we don't want to be the weird ones. We don't want to be the ones that are following after God. We want to be like everybody else, right? And that's a common rallying cry today, right? Everyone wants to be a, alike. Everybody wants to be like everyone else. They don't want to be different. They don't want to stand out. Or the ones who do want to stand out and want to do it for the wrong reasons. And so anyway, they had these different reasons for wanting a king. They wanted someone who's going to fight their battles for them. And the reason I bring that out is we're going to be looking at three different battles today and how horrible of a job Saul did at fighting their battles for. Okay? But that was their desire. They said, we want a king like everyone around us, one that's going to lead us out to battle, one that's going to fight for us. And then God's going to show them what that looks like, right? Um, So last week, what we looked at was Saul's ascension to the throne. 
Uh, he wasn't looking for a kingdom. He wasn't looking to be a king. He was looking for donkeys. And he found a whole nation of them. Um, but anyway, he uh, had no clue what God had in store for him, that God had plans for him, that God had chosen him or had a place for him. And instead, he was just going about his life. And God was able to put the circumstances in place, the events in place, to get him where he wanted him at. And that's instructive to us because a lot of times we, we stress and we worry a lot about trying to find God's will and God's program for our lives when if we, if we focus on just following after the Lord and doing what he'd have us to do, he's going to make sure our, our feet are guided in the right direction. He can make things happen, even on a national level, uh, even to put us at the right place at exactly the right time. I've said this before, I'll say it again. I, I like how many times in the Bible that it talks about uh, her hap was to land on a certain field, right? That was Ruth. And there's different times that things just happened to be that way at a certain time, which we know who did it. God did it, right? And so he has a way of putting people where he needs them at, when he needs them there. And he's just that good. Uh, we put too much emphasis on ourselves and on our own abilities, on our own wisdom and determination whenever we need to just put ourselves in his hands and allow him to work it out. But anyway, uh, God gets Saul to Samuel right at the day that uh, he's supposed to be there. He uh, has anointed him as king, sends him away, and meets whenever he's going to uh, announce him to be king in front of all of the people of Israel. They announce that he's king. He goes back home. He's plowing, and nothing has really changed in his life. Mm -hmm. Nothing's really changed in Israel. But God has planted the seed of the Spirit in him, and he is working a work in his life. And anyway, through all of that, the enemy attacks, word gets to Saul, and God stirs the spirit up in him, kind of like whenever the spirit would come on Samuel, or not Samuel, Samson. Remember that? Yeah. And the spirit comes upon him, and he says, and I pointed this out last week, kind of like David, is there not a cause? He said, there's, there's a reason for me to do something. And he gathers all the people up and gets an army of over 300,000 men, beats the enemy, rescues the ones that were being oppressed. He's now the hero, and now he is recognized as the, as the king of Israel, right? He has a, a group of men that follow after him, that are dedicated to him, and uh, seems like everything's going well, right? The kingdom is made sure in his hand. He has brought a victory. He has done the things that they were expecting him to do, right? He unified the people. He led them to battle. He won the battle, right? And so the last thing that we looked at is that Samuel stood up before all of them and said, I just want you to remember that all of the years that I was the prophet, all the years that I was the judge before you, I haven't defrauded anyone. I have led you in the ways of God. I have been faithful and God has been faithful to you, but yet you have rejected me, you've rejected God, and you asked for a king. And he gives him the challenge, and he tells him at the end of uh, chapter number 12, I believe it is. At the end of chapter number 12, he challenges him then, verses 13 through 15. That's kind of the middle of chapter 12. Uh, he says, if you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then shall both ye and also the king that reigneth over you 
continue following the Lord your God. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then shall the hand of the Lord be against you as it was against your fathers. Then down at verse number 24, only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart, for consider how great things he hath done for you. But if ye shall still do wicked, or wickedly, ye shall be consumed, both ye and your king. So Samuel, one of his last things that we find here in his position of leadership, as he's handing over Saul, he warns them. He says, if you will fear God, follow him, keep his commandments, then he's going to be with you. He's going to fight your battles. He's going to bless you in spite of what you've done. But if you continue to rebel against him and refuse to follow him and do wickedly, then God is going to allow your enemies to overrun you, basically. And so that kind of sets the stage for the following uh, few chapters that we're going to be in today. They have this choice. They're hanging in the balance, right? Uh, Joshua announced before all the people, uh, choose you this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, right? Well, Israel has to choose, and specifically, Saul has to choose. Now, we've pointed out repeatedly that Saul wasn't necessarily a spiritual man. He was a man after the people's own heart, right? And that's going to be highlighted in the passages that we're looking at today. So let's look at 1 Samuel chapter 13. It says, Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years over Israel. So there it gives us a time frame, two years. Saul chose him 3,000 men of Israel, whereof 2,000 were with Saul in Mishmash and in Mount Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin, and the rest of the people he sent every man to his tent. And Jonathan smote the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba, and the Philistines heard of it, and and Saul blew a trumpet throughout all the land, saying, "Let the Hebrews fear." Or, excuse me, let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard say that Saul had smitten the garrison of garrison of the Philistines, and that Israel was had an abomination with the Philistines. And the people were called together after Saul to Gilgal, and the Philistines gathered themselves together to fight with Israel, uh, thirty thousand chariots and six thousand horsemen, and people as the sand which is on the seashore, in multitude. And they came up and pitched in Mishmash, eastward from Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait, for the people were distressed, then the people did hide themselves in caves, and in thickets, and in rocks, and in high places, and in pits. And some of the Hebrews went over Jordan, to the land of Gad and Gilead, as for Saul, he was yet in Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. And he tarried seven days according to the set time that Samuel had appointed, but Samuel came not to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. And Saul said, Bring hither a burnt offering to me, and peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering, and it came to pass that as soon as he had made an end of offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him, that he might salute him. So in this first portion of this, we find two years has elapsed, okay? Since he had been made as king and he had taken that position, he had a great victory and the people were kind of riding off that high a little bit. But there was a couple problems that came about with them installing a king and with them uh, bringing about this bit of unity amongst the people that also stirred up their enemies, so what ended up happening is that the Philistines had garrisons 
positioned in different strategic places around Israel to keep them in check. Okay, uh, And so Saul had raised up this army of 300,000. He raised them up through fear. Right? Anyone remember what he said whenever he wanted to raise up the army? Or what he did? He threatened to, well, he threatened to slaughter their animals, right? He hewed up the oxen that he was plowing with, sent it out through, throughout all of Israel, and he says, anyone who doesn't come and follow after me, this is what I want to do to all your animals. Right? And so they said, okay, well, we're afraid of Saul. We're going to follow after him. And so they came out to battle. Well, whenever the, the victory was won and whenever the enemy was subdued, they went back home. Saul kept these 3,000, 2,000 with him, 1,000 with Jonathan. And as I said, the Philistines had came in the area and they were keeping the people in check. And like I said, in strategic places to keep them from gathering together as one army to oppose them. The Philistines would have been the land just south of them. This would have been the area that they would have had to uh, come up around whenever they came from Egypt up into Israel. Okay, so The Philistines is kind of to the, to the southwest along the coast just below them. And they were their per perpetual enemies. And God said whenever he put Saul in, that Saul was going to begin to drive the Philistines out. David's going to finish it. Saul's going to start it. Uh, but anyway, at that time, the Philistines are there in the land. They are keeping the people kind of at bay, kind of under control. And with these garrison there, there was a... They're not with these With Saul and Jonathan having their, their two tiny armies, 2,000, 3,000, right? Those are little armies. Them having them there, the Philistines were coming in that area to keep them from amassing a bigger army. And Jonathan, uh, I don't know if it's unbeknownst to Saul, it definitely doesn't seem like under his command, Jonathan decides that he is going to go out and he is going to, uh, he is going to go out and attack one of these garrison of the Philistines. Okay? And God gives him victory over them. See, Jonathan, we find, and we're going to find through these passages today, Jonathan was a man of faith. He believed God. And so God had given Israel promises, and he said, uh, I'm going to make it so that a few of you shall be able to uh, have victory over many, that you can take a handful of men and cause tens of thousands to flee. And Jonathan is saying, okay, God has made these promises to us, he can recall back with Gideon, for instance. Gideon took 300 men and slew a number that was like the sand on the seashore, right? Mm -hmm. Gideon did that. And so Jonathan's looking back at who their God is, what their God has done, what their God has promised. And he says, hey, I'm going to lead this group of men, and we're going to go over and we're going to begin routing the Philistines. God's even told Samuel and Saul that this is what Saul was supposed to be doing, and Saul wasn't doing it. So Jonathan jumps on this. He goes out. He beats this one uh, garrison of the Philistines. And word of it travels back to Saul. What does Saul do about it? Did anyone catch it? Verse number four. And all Israel heard say that Saul had smitten a garrison of the Philistines. What did Saul do? Yeah, he took credit, right? If you say, well, everyone was saying that, if you look back at the end of verse number three, and Saul blew the trumpet, okay? He's drawing attention. He's trying to bring the crowd together, but him drawing the or blowing the trumpet, 
throughout all the land, saying, let the Hebrews hear. Well, what are the Hebrews hearing? That Saul was smitten the, the Philistines. Right? So we're getting a good look into the heart of Saul. We're getting a good look into who he is. And so Jonathan steps out by faith. He conquers the garrison of the Philistines. And Saul takes credit for it. Okay? And now the Philistines hear about it. And the Philistines aren't happy about it. And they gather up a huge army. How big was Saul's army? Saul had 2,000. Jonathan had 1,000, right? 3,000 men. But the Philistines had 30,000 chariots. Just their footmen, it doesn't even give a number. It says they're as the sand on the seashore. I referenced Gideon there a minute ago. That was the way that the Bible described the army that came against him, that they were as the sand on the seashore. And Gideon had the 300. Now, what Saul should be doing here is seeking after the Lord, right? Mm -hmm. He should be stepping out by faith. He should be following after Jonathan's lead, but he doesn't. Instead, what we see is now all of the people that he did have are fleeing away from him. Remember I said that Saul had originally got his army gathered because they were afraid of him? They're no longer afraid of him. They're afraid of the Philistines, and so they have left. And so he's not getting a huge army gathered up. His army is now hiding in caves and behind rocks, and rather than Saul stepping out as being the brilliant military strategist and leader that they were hoping for, Saul is quivering and waiting for Samuel to come. That's what he's waiting for. He's not pursuing God. He's not seeking after God. He's not praying to God. He's not, none of that. He's just waiting for Samuel to arrive because he looks at Samuel and God as his good luck charms. He's looking at Samuel and the religious activities that he's planning on doing here superstitiously. And we see that whenever he uh, goes ahead and he makes an offering, intrudes on the priest's office, right? He's waiting on Samuel to come and make this offering because he said, okay, after Samuel makes the offering, then God's going to be on our side and then we can go to battle. Mm -hmm. And this was his view of how God worked. He says God's a good luck charm. God is working like all of the idols and all the false gods around us. We do this, God gives us that. It's a transactional relationship that, that Saul sees here. Mm -hmm. And so whenever Samuel doesn't show up in time, Saul doesn't pay any attention to God's word, doesn't pay any attention to the law, to the commands, anything like that, because the only person that was supposed to be making a sacrifice in this manner was the priest, mm -hmm. was someone of the tribe of Levi, was someone of the Aaronic priesthood, right? Not Saul, not a Benjamite. He had no uh, claim whatsoever to the priesthood. And so he was trespassing, if you will. He was intruding. And so not only is he trying to take over God's position as leader of Israel, he's taking over Samuel's position as priest over Israel, right? Yeah. And so he says, okay, I'm going to offer up this sacrifice so that God will bless me right? Mm -hmm. And so I can defeat my enemies. And so we're getting a look into how, Sam, or excuse me, how Saul's mind works in all of this, and it's pretty messed up. Remember, he never was a spiritual man to begin with. He didn't have a whole lot of interest in the spiritual things. He was just going at it the best way that he knew how as a man. We talk to people a lot of times, 
and try to talk to them about the things of God. And they try to rationalize it. They try to reason it out by their own understanding, by their own wisdom. And they have a view of God in their mind that is not what the scriptures have. There's plenty of people that's that way. If we're not careful, we do the same thing. But this is what Saul was doing. And he was saying, okay, this is the way that I think God works. This is the way I think God relates to me. So this is how I'm going to go about doing this. Not only that, he's working out of fear. He's working out of impatience. He's working out of uh, insecurity, right? Pride. All these things are going on in his life, and it's a magnification of the people of Israel and the way that they were. And so anyway, as we go back to this, we look at what's going on. He takes credit for what Jonathan has done. Jonathan worked by faith. Saul's working out of fear. And all the people are leaving. What would have been something good for Saul to have done here instead of intruding on the priest's office? How could he have united the people? How could he have brought them together and seen a victory here? Any ideas? Okay, so lift up God, right? That would have been the best way. He could have said, okay, guys, I know we're outnumbered, but we haven't factored in God yet. And he could have brought up all of the victories. Remember how God gave victory through Moses. Remember how he did these things in Egypt. Remember how he parted the Red Sea. Remember how he gave victory at Jericho. Remember how he cast out all of our enemies before us whenever we came into the promised land. Remember how... He gave this victory, that victory. He would have known more of them. Uh, I talked about um, Gideon already. You've got Gideon. You've got Jephthah was another one. You have uh, Samson and all of the victories he had against the Philistines. And he could have said, remember all these times that God gave victory. He could have even said, remember two years ago when there was 300,000 of us that weren't soldiers, that weren't trained. We just came out and we were to rescue the people of Jabesh-Gilead and God gave us a decisive victory over those people, and God has blessed. So come on, follow me. You know that God put me here. You know that God has made all these promises. He could have went back to the ones that I was talking about a minute ago that Jonathan would have recalled about how God said, if you follow after me, then I'll make you to be able to chase away armies 10 and 20 times bigger than you, right? And he could have rallied the troops, and he could have sought after God. There was other priests there. There's Abijah, I think is his name. Uh, there was other priests there, and he could have said, okay, we're going to consult God. We're going to pray to God. And he could have proclaimed a time of prayer, of fasting, whatever, seeking God for a victory here. And God could have led them, and they could have had a victory. But instead, what he ends up doing, it says, verse 8, he tarried. He waited seven days, according to the set time that Samuel had appointed. But Samuel came not to Gilgal, and the people scattered from him. And so Saul said, bring hither the burnt offering to me and peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. And it came to pass that as soon as he had made an end of offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. As soon as he got done doing it. So if he would have waited just a little longer on Samuel, if he would have been patient, if he would have followed after the commands of God, and stayed out of the, the from intruding on the priest's office, right? Mm-hmm. Then we may have seen a victory here. 
but we're not going to see a victory. But anyway, Samuel's going to come. He's going to reprimand him for what he has done because he has sinned against God. But our lesson that we can get from all of this is in Saul's eyes, if we can kind of take ourselves and put ourselves in Saul's place, we don't know what it's like to be a king. We don't know what it's like to have armies against us. But we can imagine a little bit, right? We've all had circumstances that seemed impossible. There's been times that we were fearful, times that we were desperate, times that we uh, felt overwhelmed, right? And it pushes us to do things that are stupid. Right? Whenever we feel desperate, when we feel overwhelmed, we are very much in danger of doing stupid things. And anyway, um, we need to be careful also about our impatience because God doesn't work on our timetable. God does things in His perfect time and He knows what's best. And I wonder how many times we mess up royally just in the, the hour, figuratively speaking, just in the hour before God was going to deliver. Mm -hmm. Just right before God was about to do something, we got to that breaking point and we gave up or we did something stupid or we, right? And this is what Saul did is right almost at time for Samuel to be there. If he needed Samuel for his crutch, if he needed Samuel to offer up that offering or to guide him or whatnot, if he would have just waited until Samuel came, but instead, he makes up some excuses that we might be able to relate to to justify this. Okay? So let's continue in verse number 11. It says, And Samuel said, What hast thou done? And I don't figure that this was just a casual question to him. Samuel came up and he saw the burnt offerings. He saw all this going on. And it was probably a pretty angry or upset. What have you done? You not understand how badly you've messed up. What have you done? And Saul said, because I saw. That's, that's a key phrase right there. I saw. He was walking by sight, not by faith, right? Mm -hmm. You start taking in the things that you perceive, the circumstances that are around you, the things that you are seeing, the things that you are feeling, and they're going to lead you astray. We walk by faith, not by sight. Because I saw that the people were scattered from me. It's not my fault. They abandoned me. It's their fault. Right? Because the people were scattered from me, that thou camest not. It's your fault, Samuel. You should have been here. Right? People were scattered from me. Thou camest not within the days appointed. And the Philistines gathered themselves together. So it is the army's fault. It's your fault. By extension, it was God's fault because he was the man of God, right? So God has failed me. His man has failed me. His people have failed me. It's all their fault. And on top of all that, the enemy was against me. The circumstances were in the way and everybody was messing up and it was everybody else against me. Therefore, said I, the Philistines will come down now upon me to Gilgal, there's fear, and I have not made supplication to the Lord. There is uh, hypocritical religion, false religion for him, right? He says, I had to do this. Everybody else 
wasn't doing what was right, so I had to do what I thought was right. Kind of interesting, isn't it? And so he says, I need to make a supplication for the Lord. I can't go to battle until we have this offering. I can't go do this until we pray about it. How many people has used praying or used the name of God to justify stupid stuff that they've done? Right? I prayed about it, and then I can go ahead and go on with doing something completely contrary to God's will. Man gets with a woman that is completely wrong, not even saved, completely out of the will of God. He says, well, I prayed about it, and I've got the peace of God about it. Well, who am I to argue, right? Uh, years ago, we were in our, our home church, and it was uh, before our current pastor was there, and the church was without a pastor. And there was a guy that was a preacher that had been there for a long time, and he was an evangelist, and a lot of people thought that he was going to end up being the pastor. And he came up and he says, I don't believe it's the will of God for me to be the pastor of the church. And they said, okay, well, if it's not the will of God for you, we're moving on down the line. We're taking your name out of the, out of the running for this. And so he was out of there. And so they continued looking and they, they thought they found the right guy. And actually they did find the right guy. They found our current pastor. And um, then this guy got upset. And he says, well, no, now I'm interested. And they said, but you said it wasn't God's will, and who are we to violate the will of God for your life in making you pastor when you said it wasn't God's will? But people do that kind of stuff all the time, right? And they try to justify, I prayed about it, or I believe it's God's will, or I don't believe it's God's will, whenever it clearly either violates God's will or God hasn't spoken about it. A lot of times it is our will, and we try to put God's name on it. And I think that God holds us accountable for that because he's not going to allow us to use his name to endorse our bad decisions whenever he's nowhere around it. Okay? But anyway, Saul is trying to sound religious here. He's trying to sound spiritual. And he says, needed to go to battle, couldn't go to battle unless I went through the religious rituals. Unless I had my... uh, my good luck charms there, unless I had my superstitious things in place, right? And so I have not made supplication to the Lord. And so he says, I forced myself, therefore, and offered a burnt offering. I just had a really silly illustration come to my head. <laughs> There's a movie. I can't necessarily endorse it. But the, the guy's the new sheriff in town. And they don't like him because of racists and prejudice and all this kind of stuff. And they're getting ready to hang him. And so he pulls out a gun and holds it to his own head. And he threatens his own life and says if they don't let him go, then he's going to kill himself. And all the people are actually gullible enough. They hear him and they're like, I think he's just crazy enough to do it. And they let him go. He takes himself hostage. Okay? And so that was the idea that came to my mind whenever Saul said, I forced myself. I was holding the gun to my own head. I forced myself to do it. And so that was his idea. I forced myself. But this is all um, an exercise in self-will for Saul. This is Saul doing what is right in Saul's eyes. And really, all throughout the book of Judges, every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Then they wanted a king. And so they gave him, God gave him a king that was like them, that was doing what was right in his own eyes. And so this is what we're seeing Saul do. 
And so after he tells Samuel this, Samuel said to Saul, Thou hast done foolishly, that thou hast not kept the commandment of the Lord thy God, which he commanded thee. For now would the Lord have established thy kingdom upon Israel forever. So he said, you just did something really stupid. Was it that hard to just obey God? God has already given you plenty of evidence that he is able to deliver you. He's already done it many times for Israel. He's already proven that he can uh, take care of you in these times that you don't have to resort to your own fleshly uh, weapons and your own carnal wisdom. Okay, He said God's already proven these things. On top of that, you have his command. All of the law and different things that it re- had uh, had showed them what God desired, what God uh, commanded for them to do. And he also had Samuel there as a prophet, as the man of God, before him to help him. So he wasn't by himself in it. So he had the testimony of past generations. He had the testimony of the law. He had the testimony of the man of God there with them. And he still chose to go against all of that and do what was right in his own eyes out of fear, desperation, all of these things. And so verse 14, But now thy kingdom shall not continue. The Lord hath sought him a man after his own heart, and the Lord hath commanded him to be a captain over his people, because thou hast not kept that which the Lord commanded thee. I think another important thing about all of this is that whenever he was confronted by the sin that he committed, his response was the same as Adam and Eve's. Remember Adam and Eve, whenever they sinned, what did they do? Yeah, started casting blame, right? And so Saul, just like them, as soon as he was confronted for this, remember he's supposed to be the leader. He's head and shoulders above everyone else. Rather than him saying, you're right, Samuel, I messed up. He started casting blame on everybody else around him. And so Samuel tells him, God has rejected you and your dynasty. You would have been sure on your throne. You would have continued your son after you would have been king and his son after him. But because you have done this, your lineage ends with you. You're the last king of your family that sits on the throne. Okay? And it says that God has chosen a man after his own heart. This is something that confuses us a lot of time. A lot of people wonder about how David could be a man after God's own heart. We point to his mistakes, his mess-ups and everything. His sin with Bathsheba. Uh, his sin in uh, numbering the people. Several different things that he does. But what is David's response every time he messes up? And he realizes it. Mm-hmm. He doesn't cast blame. He takes yeah. takes responsibility. Yeah. And so, if you look at Psalm fifty three, or excuse me, fifty one, that was after his sin with Bathsheba. Whenever he is mourning and lamenting to God, and he says, "Against thee and thee only have I sinned." And he confesses it. He says, "I have done abominably. I have sinned against you." And he owns it. Right. Another passage that jumped out to me in this thought was whenever he did number the people. Remember, he went through and he had the census. It was a thing of pride. He wanted to see how large his army was so that he could glory and boast in his numbers and his power rather than in the power of God. And so whenever they start numbering the people and everything, it comes back to David and he realizes that what he's done has been selfish. It's been out of pride and he is not following God at that time. He's not relying on the strength of God. He's relying on the strength of his army. And God, through his uh, prophet, 
comes to him and he says, I'm going to give you a choice. Mm-hmm. You can either be subject to famine, you can be chased by, uh, chased by the sword or what, all these different things. And whenever all that's going on, David's response to God is he's seeing his people suffer because of his mistake, okay, is he prays to God. And I want to go ahead and turn over there. It's um, 2 Samuel 24. This gives us an idea of David being a man after God's own heart. 2 Samuel 24. Last chapter of 2 Samuel. In verse 17 it says, And David spake unto the Lord when he saw the angel that smote the people and said, Lo, I have sinned, and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Let thine hand, I pray thee, be against me and against my father's house. It's a big difference from Saul, isn't it? Saul's sitting there saying, Hey, I didn't do any wrong. I was forced into it. It's their fault. Kill all them. Don't kill me. And David said, it's my fault. Leave them alone and let me bear the responsibility. And so we start seeing how David was a leader after God's own heart, right? Mm -hmm. That he would, now God didn't have any sin to take up on himself, but God went a step further and he took up on himself the sin of others. So you can kind of see a um, spectrum here, if you will. You've got Saul taking his own sin and casting it on others. You have David taking his own sin and retaining it on himself. And then you have God taking the sins of others upon himself. Right? But anyway, that's just a bit of a, a side note from all of this. But whenever Samuel says, uh, the Lord has sought a man after his own heart, in verse number 14, your kingdom is not going to continue. This was the cost because Saul said, I don't care what God's word says. I don't care what's right and what's wrong according to God. I'm going to do things the way that makes sense to me. And everybody else is going to pay the consequences for it. So what are the consequences other than Saul not being the king anymore? Uh, I'm not going to read down through here, but I'm just going to, uh, going to kind of tell the story. As we go on down through this, we find that they don't go against the Philistines at all. The Philistines have rallied a big army. All of Saul's people hid. They stay hid. Mm-hmm. The Philistines go through the country, take away all of their weapons. The only one that has a sword in the entire country is Saul and Jonathan. Imagine that. In all of Israel, the only ones that even have swords and armor is the king and his son. None of the rest of the people have weapons anymore. As a matter of fact, they've even taken all of the metal workers, all of the blacksmiths out of the country. So now there's not even anyone who can make swords and weapons. And the people of Israel have to go to the Philistines even to get their weapons, not their weapons, their farm implements sharpened and repaired. And this is in two years of Saul becoming king. So Israel said, we need a king so bad because we need someone to fight for us We need to get rid of Samuel's corrupt children here, his corrupt sons. And we want someone who's like all the nations around us. And now they are overran by their enemies, embarrassed by their enemies. Their king is a coward. Mm -hmm. 
We're going to find him in a minute. He's got 600 men with him. They're hiding under a tree. Okay? They no longer have weapons. They have no means of defending themselves. And they are now having to go to their enemies, which are keeping constant count and constant record of the tools, the implements, the weapons that the people have. Okay? And so they're completely under their control. But we come down to verse number, or not verse, to, to chapter number 14. And I'm not going to get as far as I was hoping I would today, but that's nothing new. Uh, but chapter number 14, we find uh, a contrast between Jonathan and Saul. In chapter number 14, we start off, and Jonathan uh, is not too happy with the situation. He's not happy with being one of only two people in the nation having a sword, and his dad being a coward and not leading the people. Having all of the promises of God and having the power of God and not tapping into it, Jonathan's not happy about it. And so without telling Saul, Jonathan decides that he's going to go. It seems like there's a, a new garrison of the Philistines going to close up this last pass, this last area here. And Jonathan tells his uh, armor bearer, he says, what we're going to do is we're going to make our way through this sharp, rocky pass down into the valley where the Philistines are, and we're going to discover ourselves to them. Now, that seems like a death mission, right? We're going to go down, the two of us, the king's son and his armor bearer, and we're going to say, hey, Philistines, here we are. And he says to his armor bearer, we're going to discern God's will in this, because he's already got the promises of God on his side, right? And so he says to discern God's will about the matter, if they say, come to us, we're going to go to them and we're going to kill them. Okay? Or if they say, stay there, we'll be with you in a minute, then we're going to know that God's not with us at the moment. And the armor bearer says, hey, I'm with you, life or death, I trust you, I'm going to follow after you. I mean, that's a brave guy, right? He doesn't even have a sword. For all I know, he, he's got Jonathan's armor. I guess he's got his, his shield, maybe. Maybe he's got a mattock or a shovel. <laughs> I mean, he's, they got farm implements, pitchfork. <laughs> that might be okay. And so anyway, they go and they discover themselves to the Philistines. And what he tells, uh, this is something I can't miss this. Uh, what Jonathan says to the young man in verse number six, he says, come over and let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised by the way, that word uncircumcised, he is making a difference between God's chosen people and their enemies. This idea of them being circumcised, they were God's chosen. This was uh, God's, uh, a seal of God's covenant upon them. So he is referring to them being God's covenant people here. It says, it may be that the Lord will work for us, for there is no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. He says it doesn't matter how many of us there is. If God wants to do it, he can do it with one. He can do it with 100. He can do it with 1 million. It doesn't matter. If God's in it, he can do it with whatever number we have. And so the armor bearer said, Do all that is in thine heart. Uh, in thine heart, turn thee. Behold, I am with thee according to thy heart. And so they passed over. They discovered themselves to the Philistines. The Philistines said, Hey, look, they're poking up out of the holes in the rocks they've been hiding in. They're mocking them. They're making fun of them. He said, come on down, we're going to show you a thing or two. And Jonathan looks at him and says, hey, there's our sign. God's with us. And basically, they just taunted them. They said, come down here, we're going to beat you up. 
And Jonathan looks at his armor bearer and he says, game one. And I don't know how this works. It says they crawled on their hands and knees. So I don't know if this was like a uh, some sort of a field of barley or if it was uh, like very brushy area or whatnot. But anyway, they went on their hands and knees through this area with their one sword, I guess, maybe their pitchfork. And they killed 20 men in about a half an acre plot. And after they kill these 20 men, they come back and they say, hey, God's with us. And then we find down in, what verse is it? Verse 15, And there was a trembling in the host in the field and among the people. The garrison and the spoilers, they also trembled. And the earth quaked, so it was a very great trembling. Now the first time I read that, just being honest with you, I was like, man, they were really shaking in their boots if they made the earth shake. But that's not what it meant. God was honoring their faith in them stepping out in faith and saying God is able to deliver by many or by few. They got the first 20, and God says, okay, I'll take it from here. He sends an earthquake in between the 20 that died and the earth shaking around them. There was mass confusion that resulted from it. There was chaos. There was panic. And the Philistines began beating each other down, started killing one another because they didn't think all of this had been done by two guys. And so they thought that the Israelites were amongst them and they started with this confusion beating down one another. And Saul from his little hill where he was at, verse number two, Saul tarried, under, or tarried in the uttermost part of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree with 600 men. From where he was at, he had watchmen up on the wall or whatever was going on. Maybe they were up in the top of the tree looking out. And they hear the noise and they see the Philistines melting away as they're beating each other down and running away from each other. And Saul says, something's going on over there. Somebody must be attacking them. Check and see who's missing. And as they look, they find out because, hey, there's not too many of them to look for, right? Small army. They say, Jonathan and his armor bearer are missing. We're going to get into Saul's demented mind just a little bit more here in just a second. But suffice it to say, he is not happy that Jonathan is missing because Jonathan has already upstaged him once. Okay? You might miss this, but this lays the groundwork for how he's going to treat David. Jonathan's upstaged him once, now he's upstaged him again. And so anyway, he calls the priest the disgraced grandson of Eli, okay? He calls him there, and he calls for the ark. And he's wanting to determine what God's will is moving forward, how to go about this. And he hears the fighting intensify. So while he's trying to discern God's will, while he's finally for once trying to seek after God, the noise gets so great, he says, Forget about it, guys. I don't care what God has to say. I'm going to go fight before Jonathan takes all the credit. Okay? If you want to know where he's saying that at, if you look down at um, 18, Saul said unto Ahiah, Bring hither the ark of God, for the ark of God was at that time with the children of Israel, keeping it around like a good luck charm, like a... Mm -hmm. a that's what he was using it as. This is what Eli and his sons, remember whenever Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas died, they heard that the Philistines had captured the ark mm -hmm. because they took it to battle as a good luck charm. Now Saul's doing the same thing. But anyway, um, 
Verse number 19, it came to pass while Saul talked unto the priest that the noise that was in the host of the Philistines went on and increased. And Saul said to the priest, withdraw thy hand. He tells the priest, buzz off, go away. I don't care what God has to say. I've had you to inquire, I, you know, you got the Urim and the Thummim out, whatever. Forget it. I'm done. I don't need to know what God has to say. I'm going out after the Philistines because I can't let Jonathan have another victory. Okay? And so they assembled themselves, and they went after the people of the Philistines. It says there was a very great discomfiture. In other words, they were kicking butt. Okay? And they were chasing after the Philistines. They were winning. The people were coming out of the places that they were hiding. The ones that had abandoned the Israelites and went to fight with the Philistines turned against the Philistines back to Israel. So we have some betrayers, some turncoats there, right? And so Saul is growing his army, taking off after the Philistines. In verse 23, it says, So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed over unto Beth-Avon. And verse number 24, And the men of Israel were distressed that day, for Saul had adjured the people, saying, Cursed be the man that eateth any food until evening, that I may be avenged on mine enemies. We find that several times, especially with David, whenever David comes out against Goliath, whenever David comes out against the Philistines, he says the Philistines are attacking his God. These are the enemies of my God, right? Saul comes out and he says, I want revenge against my enemies. See the pride in that? And so that has led him to do another pseudo-spiritual thing, and he proclaims a fast for his entire army in the middle of a battle. If there's any time for you to do a fast, whenever you are doing rigorous work or fighting is not the time to fast. Especially not whenever it's not commanded of God. So Saul does a pseudo-spiritual thing and he says, okay, everybody fast, and if anyone breaks this fast, then they are cursed. And we can shake that off as saying, okay, Saul's mental. He's dumb. What he has said is stupid. Why would we do this? But there's a problem with this. What is Saul's position? He is the king of Israel. He is their voice. He is their representative. He is their mouthpiece. And he is supposed to be the man who is leading them under God, right? And so if he speaks with authority on God's behalf, as he claims to have done, then they are, even though it was stupid, then they are bound to it, right? And so all the people go that entire day fighting, and they become extremely faint in the way. It hinders them from battling because Saul is dumb. Saul is going about making these silly rules up and these silly things that are not even of God that in the long run is going to have a negative effect on his people performing the work that God has them to do. I can draw a parallel for that. If we're not careful as Christians, we start doing a bunch of stupid junk that God has never commanded that hinders us from our effectiveness in serving God. We need to make sure that what we're doing is actually of God and not just someone who claims to be 
a representative of God or someone throwing out pseudo-spiritual nonsense is telling us to do that is actually going to harm us more than it's going to help us and is going to harm us in our cause. Uh, that's one thing that comes against Christianity today is there is a bunch of pseudo-spiritual nonsense that is being spewed out by people who claim to represent God that never came from God to begin with that keeps people away from God. You understand what I mean? Understand what I'm saying? So this is what he does. And the people refused to eat all that day because Saul has put a curse on us if we do. But Jonathan wasn't there. He was too busy actually winning the battle and leading the people. He didn't hear Saul's nonsense whenever it came out. And as they're going, they're going through this place where the trees are dropping down with honey. And you may or may not like honey, but that was a big thing back then. Basically, they were surrounded by food and couldn't eat it. It'd be like Jacques being told by the doctor that he can't eat and then having to be like in a, a, a big barbecue all day long and people barbecuing all the way around him and saying, no, sorry, you can't eat. That'd be messed up, wouldn't it? And so anyway, there's food all the way around them. And even Jonathan is getting tired, is getting weary. And he takes the end of his staff, dips it in the honey, and he eats some of it. And just that little sugar rush is he was revived a little bit. There was energy to him because he had received food, nourishment, right? And he's pointing out to the guy, say, hey, I know you're tired. There's food all around you. Why aren't you eating? And they said, well, your dad said something really stupid. And Jonathan's response, then said Jonathan, my father hath troubled the land. He spoken against the king, but he spoke the truth. My father had troubled the land. See, I pray you how mine eyes have been enlightened because I tasted a little of this honey. But none of the people would touch it. They went on through that day. The sun went down because Saul said, you shall not eat of it this day. As soon as the sun went down, it was a new day. And they flew on the spoil. They started slaughtering the animals and eating them bloody and everything like a bunch of wild animals themselves. And they were breaking the law. They were sinning against God, eating the animals with the meat, not even cooking or anything. And Saul sees this, and he's like, oh, this is bad. He sets up an altar, and he says, bring all your animals. We're going to have a sacrifice here. And as soon as you get done eating, we're going to continue since we've lost time because of my stupid mistake of telling you not to eat. We've lost time, so eat, and then we're going to travel through the night to regain the, the, ter or the, the distance that we've lost. Okay? And then the priest comes up, and he says, before you do all that, let's inquire of God. And so Saul has made his first altar. And he inquires of God, and God is silent. He says, there's so much foolishness that's went on this day, I'm not even talking to you, Saul. Okay? And Saul says, huh, this is weird. God's not talking to me. God's not talking to the priest. He's not leading me right now. Couldn't possibly be something that I've done. Right? And so he tells the people, he says, there's sin in the camp. And even if it's my own son, whoever it is that has sinned, they're going to die today. And so get this, okay? You can read it later, but he says, okay, we're going to put Israel on one side, all the army on one side, and me and my son on the other side. And then we're going to cast lots to see which party has the guilty party within it. They cast the lots and it lands on Saul and Jonathan. They cast lots again, it lands on Jonathan. And Jonathan confesses and he says, I ate a little bit of honey. After you said, cursed be anyone who eats, I ate. And so Saul says, fine then, you got to die. What I've said, I've said, so you're going to die. 
This is to his own son. So what would bring him to this place? We, we look at it and we just think, he's a little overzealous, right? But even look at the way, and I might be reading into this, pardon me if I am. But he says at the very beginning, knowing that Jonathan was separated from him when he made this command. Okay? Knowing that Jonathan didn't hear him say it, that there was already this division between the two of them, he says, even if it's my son, I'm going to kill him. I think he already knew. And then whenever they cast lots between the people, how did he divide it up? He says, it'll be me and my son versus all the people. He's not thinking it's going to be a random Achan in the group. He already knows how it's going to turn out. And so it's him and his son that's taken, and then it's Jonathan that's taken. And then he's like, I'm going to kill Jonathan. Why? He's upstaged me twice already. I'm the king. And I've been too big of a coward to lead. And Jonathan keeps stealing my thunder and he's stealing the hearts of the people. And so this is a good way for me to get rid of him here and now. Right? You see that in there? So you think, oh, Saul's the loving father. He loves Jonathan. You know the times that he tries to kill him with a javelin? It didn't start then. It started prior to that. Okay? And so he was ready to kill his son for disobeying him. And I already said there a minute ago that God had uh, allowed the lot to fall the way that it did. He had honored Saul's curse that he had put upon him because he was the representative of God. And even if he was going to speak foolishly, he spoke foolishly in the name of God. And if God didn't uphold that, then it was going to dishonor the name of God, right? And so rather than that, he allowed Saul's foolish curse to stand, his, excuse, his foolish vow to stand, and he allowed the consequences to work out from that. Okay? And so anyway, whenever all this was going on, He's like, okay, I'm going to get my sword out. I'm going to kill my own son, Jonathan, because he has disobeyed the stupid thing that I said. And I don't want to look like a fool in front of everyone else. Everyone else stood up and said, he is the one that is responsible for the victory today. He is the one that led us. He is the one that actually had faith and followed God. And you are not killing him. And the people rescue Saul's son, Saul. And so how do you think Saul felt at that time whenever they stood with Jonathan instead of with him? He's seeing that the foolish things that he's doing, following his own heart, doing what he wants to do, is also losing credibility with his people. It's causing him to have to do goofy and foolish things. And it's causing the people who once had faith in him two years before to lose all confidence in him and turn against him. And so this is going to continue going onward further and further. And really this is a great seed that's planted with Saul that from this point onward, this jealousy, this pride, this envy is only going to grow. And it's going to infect him and it's going to further drive him mental really. But anyway, after all this happens, they've wrought a great victory. 
But because Saul didn't follow after God, seek after God, and allow God to complete the victory, they only had a partial victory. And the Philistines continued to be a thorn in their side. And we look at the end of chapter number 14. It says, And there was sore war against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he took him unto him. And so the Philistines was a constant problem. And Saul was now drafting in all kinds of extra people. Anytime that he saw a strong man, he says, i got to build up my army. Got to build up my army. Always fighting. Got to build up my army because he is trusting in himself and he's trusting in his numbers to fight his battles rather than God. And so now he's still seeking men instead of seeking God. And it's an ongoing problem all the days of Saul. Now I'm at the end of my time here. But in chapter number 15, we see the third battle. And I'm not going to go through all this, okay? But the third battle is the most decisive one. And in this, it's the one where he is commanded to go out and destroy the Amalekites. The Amalekites had come out against Israel under Moses whenever they were out uh, in the wilderness, tried to destroy them, caused lots of problems. And God says their iniquity is not yet filled, but one day that God was going to use his people and wipe them off the face of the earth. And he chooses Saul to be the one to do it. And we all know that Saul doesn't obey. Partial obedience, he kills part of them. Keeps the best of the livestock, keeps the king, some of the best of the, the spoil for himself and for his people. And he is finally and completely rejected by God. And God takes his hand off of him and he says, I'm done with you. Okay? And so that's his third third major battle here. But we see his fall was because of his self-will, because of his pride, because of his failure to obey God and to trust God. And so bringing that all back to us, we have some of the very same promises in our lives. We have God with us. We have God for us. The Bible says if God be for us, who can be against us, right? Mm -hmm. And it's up to us to be familiar with his word, for us to obey his word, for us to trust him, his Holy Spirit, his will, his way for us, and allow him to work it out. And in times whenever it's difficult, in times whenever we feel overwhelmed or confused, it's tempting for us to trust our own instincts or our own wisdom or do things according to our own will. But we have so many examples in the Bible of how it works whenever people cease trusting God and they start trusting in their own ability or trusting in the ways of man. It doesn't work out well. And so that should encourage us to keep going back to God, keep going back to his word and saying, okay, God, the battle is difficult. The odds seem completely against me. I don't see where victory is going to come from. I don't know how you're going to work this out, but I know I can't do these things because they are not right. I'm not going to cast the blame on other people. I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to fall back to worldly methods and worldly wisdom I'm going to sit here, I'm going to continue seeking you, I'm going to continue obeying you, and I'm just going to wait and see how you bring the victory. And if we do that, in the end, God comes through, he works the victory. If we fall short, and if we say, okay, I, I just can't handle it anymore, I'm going to force myself to do it some other way, 
to go about dishonestly, go against God's will, against God's word, we're going to reap the consequences of that too. It's our choice. But God has left us plenty of examples, plenty of encouragement, but we have to keep our mind, our heart, our flesh in check or we will do stupid things like Saul did. Does anyone got any questions or any comments on what we look at tonight? Apparently Melody doesn't. I don't know what happened to her. Okay, let's go ahead and go over and pray. Dear Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings. Lord, we thank you so much, Lord, for these passages that we have in your word that uh, show us uh, some of these good, bad examples, Lord, to help us to stay on the right track, Lord, and see the benefits of trusting you and serving you, Lord. And I pray, Lord, help us to be a Jonathan and not a Saul. And Lord, we just praise you for all that you do and all you're going to do. And all these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm.